0: By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold. And it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold.
1: When's the last time you sat down and thought, is this life that I have the life that I want? And if it isn't, what am I doing each day to work towards the life I do want?
0: Now, from my experience as a doctor, and also probably from your experience watching or listening to this, we probably know that we don't really treat mental health in the same way as we treat physical health. And so with that in mind, today's episode is an interview between me and Dr. Alex George. Now, Dr. Alex is a TV doctor, bestselling author and youth mental health ambassador to the government. Now, as you might be aware, if you're in the UK, uh, Dr. Alex was first featured on Love Island about five years ago. And Love Island, this reality TV show kind of catapulted him to fame. His first book is called Live Well Every Day that was released in 2021 and became a Sunday Times bestseller. And he has recently released this second book, The Mind Manual, mental fitness tools for everyone.
1: It's an idea I talk about in the Mind Manual. It's called the traffic light theory. We'd go around and we'd say red, amber or green, how you're feeling today. Now, if I said that I was amber every day, maybe every day the similar stress or pressure was I was facing, maybe I just can't get quite on top of my sleep, it allows you an, as that person to learn about why they might feel a certain way. It also allows the people around you to learn what's normal for them.
0: We talk a lot about mental health, about the stigma around mental health, and we explore some of Alex's own personal experiences and personal history with struggling with mental health issues including anxiety and including the fact that his brother died from suicide a couple of years ago
1: remember sitting there literally like sobbing away reading it being like it's going to get better it's going to get better and thank god it did it did get better and after eight
0: to ten weeks it was like a cloud lifted now, before we get into this episode, I've got a very quick announcement, which is that I'm launching a Telegram community for the podcast. Now, I'm going to be honest. Initially, the reason for starting this podcast was quite a selfish one, in that I wanted to learn from cool and interesting people and apply their insights to my own life. And it's just generally easier to hang out with people if you invite them onto your podcast rather than if you just want to have a chat with them. But over the last 18 months of running this podcast, it's grown ridiculously fast, and actually, we've had so many messages and YouTube comments and emails and Instagram DMs and stuff from people talking about how much value that you guys have gotten from the episodes as well. And so. We're planning to change direction a little bit in that instead of me just treating these conversations as a personal therapy session with the guests, which we might still do a little bit of, I actually want to learn more about you guys who are listening to the podcast or watching the podcast and understand. What are the things that you would like to see from the podcast? And I really want to better understand what challenges you're going through, what struggles you're going through, so that we can then kind of tailor the guests and tailor the questions to that. So that's why we're starting up this completely free Telegram community. If you hit the link in the show notes or in the video description, wherever you're watching or listening to this, you'll be able to sign up completely for free. It's always going to be free. You will never have to pay a penny. The group is called the Deep Divers, which I think is kind of funny. And it's basically a group where I'll be posting some of the behind the scenes stuff from the podcast. But also as we get new guests coming on, I'll be asking in that group if you guys have... Have any specific questions for the guest so that can help inform the direction of the interview? I'm also going to be posting a few polls and questionnaires and surveys in that group. So if you're interested in kind of sharing more about you and about your life, then you can do it through that group. And then again, that'll just help us figure out how do we best make this podcast as value add for you guys as possible. And we're also going to be using the Telegram group to give away some freebies. Like, for example, often authors on the podcast will come and they'll gift us like 50 of their books, for example. I don't need 50 copies of, of an author's book, but it's the sort of thing that we can absolutely send to people around the world completely for free. Anyway, if that sounds good and you'd like to join the community, then do hit the link in the podcast show notes or in the video description, wherever you're seeing this or listening to this. And now let's get on with the episode. Okay, Dr. Alex, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thank you very um, much for having me. You talk a lot about the idea of uh, mental fitness. Uh, what what does mental fitness mean?
1: um I mean, I chose uh, the word mental fitness to sit along uh, the Mind Manual as the title of my book or the subtitle, and the reason I chose that is I think a lot of the time we view mental health as this inherently bad thing. In fact, if you say physical health to someone, they'll conjure ideas of Joe Wicks running in the park, fitness. They might even say things like cardiovascular weights. Yeah, yep. they might say illness, but I bet you there'd be a lot of positive connotations if you say mental health is always or almost always depression, anxiety, sadness, or, you know, we need, you know, does that person have mental health or this person in headline papers admits to having mental health. It's like, you have a heartbeat, you have both physical health and mental health, you know this. And so, I I feel very passionately, we need to change the conversation around it so that when we think of mental health, we don't automatically jump to that negative subsection. In a way, yeah. I guess it's that spectrum, isn't it? On one end, you've got perfect mental health, which hardly anyone has. And this end, you have severe mental illness, which a percentage of people have. Most people sit somewhere along here. And the good news is that you can build upon that. You know, in the same way, you know, I wouldn't go, right, oh, I've completed the gym. I've been in the gym for the last year. Never yeah. need to go to the gym. Never need to work on my physical fitness again. What happens if I stop going to the gym? I get weaker, my cardiovascular drops off, my life expectancy will change, I'm more vulnerable to disease, I'll be less productive. It's not good. And mental fitness is the same. If you work on it and you build on it, you keep watering that plant, it grows to be a strong you know, tree or shrub, whatever you'd like it to be, but it'll be strong. And that's why I believe in mental fitness.
0: Okay, beautiful. Um, So this conversation, we're going to talk about a bunch of these mental fitness tools. Mm. Um, Before we go there, one thing that you talk about a bit is about trying to define what normal looks like for you. Mm. What you, what, What do you mean by that? And how does one go about defining normal for them?
1: I think a lot of the time um, in society, we, we set a lot of standards or expectations or ideals of what someone should be like. In reality, we're all very different. We have different genetic makeups. Our nurture is very different. Our environments are different. Um, our neurodevelopment might be different. And so, learning what the normal is for you is the bit that matters because you know there's a huge variation between people. And I think a lot of the time, unhappiness can stem from the fact that you're. Constantly chasing something which for you isn't necessarily achievable or for you might not be your ideal of peace. So, an example, an easy example would be like if you're an introvert versus you're an extrovert, your ideal of how you live your life and what a good day feels like to you is going to be very different. Like, my idea of a good day is spending a little bit of quality time with people that I care about, a lot of time in nature, and a decent amount of time alone. That could be hell for some extroverts. Yep. And so, you need to learn what's your normal environment or what you want your life to be, but also what am i like you know what do i feel like and how has that changed and people often ask me how do i know if you know someone's struggling how do i know if my son or daughter is in a bad place i say well what's normal for them if it's changed and they've gone from this kind of person to someone that they weren't a few weeks or months ago then that tells you that something has happened. Mm. And so learning a normal about yourself is very important, but also understanding, you know, looking around you, look and listen, hear, feel. Gut instinct is a, a powerful um, idea and it works. Well, we know from, you know, seeing patients in the hospital, I yeah. know you can talk about the clever fancy tests and the CRPs and inflammatory markers and all this stuff, but a lot of the time, the psychometer, as we call it, comes from gut instinct, doesn't yep. it? Yeah. Does this feel right or not?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it like, it it reminds me of when, when doing a pediatrics placement. Mm. A lot of the question is like, how is the kid relative to what's normal for them? And the parents would be like, oh, come on, there must be something more objective. And it's like, honestly, if it's normal for them, it's probably fine. (laughs) If it's not normal for them, it's probably not fine.
1: (laughs) It's an idea I talk about in the mind manual. And I I talk about it a lot, actually, when I visit schools and universities. And I've had great feedback from this. And it's a great way to work out what normal is for people around you and also get you to reflect on your own normal. And it's called the traffic light theory. So say we're sat here now, we've got croissants here. We could be having a lovely lunch together. We could have our children around the table. And we'd go around and we'd say, red and amber or green, how you're feeling today, red being bad, you get the idea. Now, if I said that I was amber every day, and I wasn't quite feeling great, but I wasn't terrible, and I was able just to articulate a few reasons why, like maybe every day the similar stress or pressure was I was facing, maybe I just can't get quite on top of my sleep, it allows you and as that person to learn about why they might feel a certain way. It also allows the people around you to learn what's normal for them. But then all of a sudden, if this person that was maybe green a lot of the time suddenly becomes red maybe three or four days in a row it makes you go well hang on what's happened something's happened here that's changed and the great thing is about having going around in a circle around the table and using this is that you all learn from each other as to what things actually make up good mental health versus what might drag your mental health down and so I think it's a really it's a really powerful tool to use to learn about your own normal and other people's normals and that's why you know a lot of this stuff I mean how long does it take to sit around a dinner table and do that traffic light theory? A few moments. Yeah. It was actually used um, in the pandemic by a lot of intensive care nurses. Um, I believe one of the ones I heard was UCL. And they were using it at the start of, end of start and end of their handover shifts to basically identify nurses that were struggling, that were burnt out. So that senior management and senior um, matrons could focus their support on those that were saying, I'm red. I've been working five days in a row. I'm knackered and so on and it allows that early identification i think that's one of the biggest things when we go back to like why is mental health viewed badly why do we have such high suicide rates particularly amongst men it's because i think in certain subsections of society we're not that great at like recognizing our own struggles and acting upon them or the struggles of other others and when you talk about men's mental health i mean why are men up to 10 times more likely to take their own life than a woman well You know, is that because of their genetics? Is it the testosterone level? Men and women are actually incredibly similar. There are slight variations in our makeup. I mean, when you look at the grand scheme of of it, we're actually incredibly similar. There are slight differences. Most of the theory around why it's so much higher in men comes from the way that we've brought men up to be. If you've grown up with man up, grow some balls, don't be a girl, and all these kind of harmful things, is it a surprise that when we've been teaching men to be tough and speaking and sharing is emasculating. When they're at the point of their weakness, how are they going to do what's most unnatural to them and, and for them? So it's, it's so important that we do these things and we embed these kind of techniques into family and into the, into the family dynamic because it teaches us new nor- It teaches us our own normal. It means that we can talk about things wh- when things are abnormal. It's like in the hospital, isn't it? Mm. You know, um, The most dangerous uh, scenario is when you've got a team that isn't communicating to each other. When someone is aware of something and there's a patient they're worried about, but they're afraid to talk out and it's very similar in mental health in a way and keep quiet, keep quiet, keep quiet and eventually this problem becomes so big it spills over. You've got a cardiac arrest in the ward. And everyone goes, yeah, but the sodium's been this high for three days. Why didn't you say anything? Because you were stressed. and because just... The feedback, I, I mean, I've done so many uh, talks. And I've, done, I've visited schools from Scotland, all the way up to the north coast of Scotland, uh, down to the south coast of this country, Ireland, Wales, everywhere, universities as well. And it's been one of the most popular things that I've suggested for families, workplaces, small teams. It's, it's great. It works so well.
0: Red, amber, Uh We We tried that once in a team meeting. Mm. And it was really helpful. And we just completely forgot about it since then. So I'm going to it, r- revive. If <laughs> you
1: know, that goes back to this point and people go, oh yeah, we been talking about mental health. Yeah. It requires discipline. One of the biggest cons in the mental health space and the wellbeing industry is that it's easy. That is an absolute con. It's hard work. There's a very good, uh, saying that you know nothing worthwhile in life comes easily. And I mm. believe that to be absolutely true. In the same way, you've got to go to the gym. If you want to get really strong, you've got to go and do squats, you lift heavy weights, you're breathless. If you're like me, you're sweating like a pig and you're walking out nearly collapsing after a hard workout. It's the same with your mental fitness as well. You've got to dedicate time and energy. You know, You talk so much about productivity but discipline's a huge part of productivity, isn't it? Like that kind of motivation versus dif- discipline. You know, Motivation lasts a few weeks. I mean, we can see that by how many people retain going to the gym from the start 1st of January to the end of January. It's like 90% of people are no longer in the gym. That's because they relied on motivation. Mm. Motivation must quickly be replaced by discipline. So you're motivated as a team to start this traffic light system but the discipline needs to take over because discipline mitigates for all of that discipline doesn't care how you feel doesn't care how tired you are it just knows that it needs to happen and yeah i think i think that's the the con in the industry because and also the problem of selling this story that oh it should be fluffy and easy all the time the problem is is that when it isn't people think they're doing it wrong that they should give up and it's not working you know sometimes it's the hard work like therapy is a good example going to therapy is hard. I have therapy every Wednesday. It's really hard talking about difficult things, talking about past traumas, talking about stuff that I maybe don't want to talk about. But I can only get better by going through the hard stuff.
0: Mm. How long have you been doing therapy?
1: I've been having therapy on and off for, I think it's been about three or four years now. And I've got to the point where I have therapy every week. And I know it's a privilege. I know that therapy is expensive, but it's the best 70, 80 pounds that I spend in my, in my week by far. In fact, I feel it's absolutely essential for me. You know, I've been through a lot of different things in my life. We all have, and there's many things I don't think I could deal with without the support of my therapist. And I think that I'm a better friend, family member, I'm more productive. I'm certainly generally more at peace in my life because I have therapy every week. It makes a huge difference to me. Have you had
0: therapy? I had my very first session uh, about an hour ago before we started recording this Good timing um, for this. Uh, great timing, yeah. It was it was so good. Um, well, no, I, I think I, I dabbled with a couple of sessions in in the past and had like mm. an online one, and mm. but this was. And how would you find it? That's really good. Um, in the past, I've sort of tried I had two different therapists, and mm. I sort of felt like we didn't really have anything to talk about, mm. and they didn't really get me. But this new guy um, who I've started working with, James, I feel like he really gets it. And the thing I'm trying to work on or you know focus on is feeling my emotions. In a sort of more conscious way, because I think I have drunk the Kool-Aid of like, I'm a chill guy, stoicism, man mm. up, don't be a girl, mm. don't be gay, all, all of the stuff that mm. you get sort of growing up uh, in in a yeah. boys secondary school in the UK, mm. <laughs> and I'm sure in, in other places around the world as well, that uh, encourage uh, encourage us to repress and suppress our emotions.
1: Do you find it, it, it's interesting because um, even in those, and you know, I mean, I, I've seen your your work and your content for a long time. Even as someone that is quite reflective as you are, you're quite open. I think as a person, you're quite transparent about things. Even as that person who actually, on the scale of perhaps stoicism or yeah. um, being worried about being emasculating, you're on the spectrum of being someone quite open, I'm, and you're yeah, still I'm affected. I'm a pretty open guy, and you're still affected <laughs> by it. Isn't <laughs> exactly. that? Isn't that show? So for so for those that perhaps are less like that, yeah it's even it's even harder and it takes a long time to un- unlearn this stuff. I mean, you know, something like 80 to 90% of our neurodevelopment is done by the age of five years old. And so the things that we hear in our early years are so, so important. And they can be often quite hard. It's can be often quite hard to unlearn. The good news is that you you can unlearn those things and people go why does that matter well understanding about the way you are and your natural reactions to situations means you're better adapted to deal with things better and also you're less likely to have conflict i mean you know the one of the biggest challenges we often face in our lives is difficulties in relationships maybe finding the right person being happy in our relationship knowing whether we're the right person these kind of things you know one of the top searched things on youtube is around relationship stuff and breakup and heartbreak advice it's up there and one of the best things you can do is to to learn about yourself i mean the whole book attached which is you know a massive book of fantastic i'd advise anyone to to read it's a it's an evidence research based book that i think is um, I think it is um, shared or was written in a way that's very accessible. You know, it talks about this idea that you can be securely attached, securely attached, which if they say about 50% of the population. I think that's probably way <laughs> off that, yeah. but you get the kind of idea. These are people that will be comfortable in scenarios. They won't lean towards avoidance. and They won't lean towards anxiety. They sit more in the middle. Then you have your anxious, you have your avoidance and your anxiously avoidance. And I think even just understanding a little bit about that stuff really helps. And And so if you have therapy, you know i think it can make a difference to to anyone's life regardless if you have something to talk about i think i one of the most common things i get asked is how how do i know if i'm bad enough for therapy well the first thing is if you're asking me am i bad enough for therapy your answer is not yes you're bad enough but it means you need therapy i mean yeah. to but but actually the, the irony of the whole point is that is that you don't need to need it to need it I think everyone can benefit. Again, it's like going to the gym and saying, I've got the gym mastered. I know how to use everything in here. There's no way I can improve my training techniques. If so, why, why do we bother having training, athlete trainers and stuff like that, and you know, PTs for Olympians, and why are they continuously mastering the art of their, their techniques? We can all learn. And I think if you can add... 10% of, you know, we use we'll talk about happiness maybe later, but we use the the currency of happiness. If you can feel 10% happier wouldn't you think that's worth that in your day? Mm. I mean, most of us would like to feel a little bit less suffering and a little bit happier. So if anyone's listening to this and going, oh, I don't know if therapy's for me, I really think everyone could benefit from it. And and the point you made. You have to connect with the therapist. It mm. is a human interaction. It requires two people to feel comfortable to share and reciprocate and understand. So if you are with a therapist who you feel that you're not, you don't feel that you can share or you just don't think they get, get you, just find another therapist. I could be with one therapist who I really connect with and you could be with that same therapist. You connect with them. Oh, sorry, I connect with them and you don't. Mm. That's fine. They won't get offended by it. Therapists are very used to it. They know, they know how it is. Yeah. So find someone that works for you.
0: Well, so I'm, I'm fully with you on this. I think therapy is almost like, and I think I've drunk the uh, Alain de Botton Kool-Aid on this. Uh, <laughs> therapy therapy is like, you know, having a personal trainer in that just because like, it's, it's a thing that just helps you improve your health rather than a thing that you should get once you've had an yeah. injury. But then I'm, I, you know, I mentioned to my mom at one point that, yeah, I was thinking of starting therapy and my mom's a consultant psychiatrist mm. and she's like quite anti-normal people having therapy mm. if there is nothing mm. to like work on. Mm. And she views it as a like medical intervention, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't just to willy-nilly give a medical inter- prescribe a medical intervention for everyone mm-hmm. in the public. Um, and I can kind of see that that perspective as well. What's, That's what's, because what's your therapy, take on this?
1: Um, therapy was originally you know, a, a designed as an intervention for those that were ill, but that was based on a model where we only really intervened when people were in severe illness or in a bad illness. I mean, look at it this way. I mean, a lot of this comes from the fact that the very model that we have for supporting mental health is based on like a tertiary treatment level. So, if you look at this, so one of the biggest issues we have is waiting lists for mental health services. Child and adult mental health services have, you know, several year waits in some cases, two or three year waits to be seen. Now, um, I you know, I work alongside with uh, a lot of the you know the psychiatrists and the the mental health nurses who head up. Uh, cams and so on. And as they will all say, that model was designed to treat severe mental illness. It wasn't designed for early intervention. It wasn't designed for prevention and so on. So a lot of these tools and treatments we have were made with that thought in mind. Now, what we're trying to shift towards in this country is Early intervention and ideally prevention of illness. And what we've learned is that actually therapeutic, therapeutic techniques, when adapted for people to, um, you know, learn how to process life, learn about themselves, learn how to deal with. Um, instances and relationships and challenges whatever in in, whatever it is in their life can be hugely beneficial it's not just about i've got ptsd i've got a huge Mm. trauma or um, i was attacked at some point or whatever it might have been yes of course it's got its place there but for everyone we all experience micro traumas we have all had a past there's always been challenges and there's always stuff that we can we can learn so yeah, I think that, that for me is, is is the point, really. It's much better to intervene early, to support people, to learn about themselves, to develop techniques of dealing with life's challenges than it is waiting till things are really bad. I mean, this is a stat that scared me when I first heard it, that the average um, time between a person's first um, mental health symptom or illness, symptom of mental illness to diagnosis – Uh, is on average around 10 years, a decade. So someone that has, so for example, me, it makes sense. I mean, my first symptom of actual anxiety, which was in a way quite debilitating at the time, was at least 12 or 13 years before someone ever told me, have you ever realized that you actually have, uh, you know, diagnosable levels of anxiety? Uh, People with depression sit for 20, 30 years with actually quite severe depression in some instances. They're just barely coping But they spend all this time suffering rather than improving. Mm. And I'd much rather people go early and be told, actually, on the very rare occasion, (laughs) actually, you don't need therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Much better to go than to wait until you've suffered for 15 years before you go, oh, I really could have dealt with this a long time ago. (laughs) Which is actually, and let's be honest, that's generally more often the case I mean I'm not on medication anymore but I was taking sertraline from anxiety for about 18 months and it saved my life it saved my life and it changed my life in fact I don't know if I'd be here if it wasn't for that medication I mean I was at the point a very very dark point at at that point and I took that medication and it saved and changed my life I'm no longer on it but that medication allowed me it gave me that mental energy if you like to make changes to my own life that basically mean that I'm here And so, you know, don't have any shame about going to get therapy or treatment or support. If you're questioning it, go and ask for it.
0: This episode is very kindly brought to you by Huel. I've been using Huel. I've been a paying customer of Huel since 2017, since my fifth year of medical school when I first discovered it. And basically, what it is, if you haven't heard of it, is that it is a meal in a shake. It's got the perfect balance of carbs and fiber and proteins and fat, and it contains 26 different vitamins and minerals. All you do is add water or milk to the powder. Usually, I use water. You can shake it up or you can blend it. I prefer to blend. And then it becomes a fantastic option if you're like me and you're kind of busy, and so you don't really have time for breakfast or lunch. My favorite version is the Huel Black Edition. It's absolutely sick. 400 calories 40 grams of protein for 400 calories i'm trying to get hench and it's actually pretty hard to find something that has such a high protein content for such a low calorie trade-off and so i really like using the huel black edition to start my mornings off it's vegan it's gluten-free it's lactose-free the black edition is available in nine flavors my favorite is salted caramel and i wouldn't recommend having every single meal huel because that gets a bit annoying after a while but it's absolutely fantastic it's like one of the meals of the day especially if you're busy and you're gonna kind of default to something unhealthy otherwise. It's also very affordable, so it actually works out to pound sixty-eight per meal for a 400 calorie meal, which is just incredible value and actually way cheaper than other generic protein shakes on the market. And it saves a bunch of time because it's so quick and easy to make. And so it's particularly exciting that they're sponsoring the podcast. And actually we had the founder of Huel, Julian Hearn, who was on the very first season of the podcast. That was a sick episode that got so many rave reviews as well. Anyway, if you are interested in trying out Huel, then head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL, A, it really helps me out. But B, you also get a free t-shirt and also a free shaker that comes with your order. So go to huel.com forward slash deep dive That'll also be linked down in the video description or the show notes. And thank you so much, Heal, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested 100 pounds into this thing, what would my return have been? X weeks or X months further down the line. Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your Trading 212 account. You can use Apple Pay, like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your Trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put 20,000 pounds in every year, up to 20,000 pounds, and it resets every April. And then all that money and grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you wanna sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. The app also lets you auto invest, which is a great thing because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you wanna give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store. And if you use the coupon code Ali, A-L-I, it'll give you a totally free share worth up to hundred pounds. It's available on iPhone and Android, and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much Trading212 for sponsoring this episode. What was the story behind the anxiety and the sertraline, if you don't mind, Cher?
1: I I mean, I was diagnosed with ADHD about six, seven months ago. And I look back now, and it's like when you know that you have something, it's like, how did I not know? How did anyone else not know my entire life? I mean, Mm. even if you follow the trajectory of my life and my life decision-making, you think even if you want to talk about, say, Love Island going on there, what a risk that is. Um, you know, the fact that I chose A E and as my career, running around in A&E as my kind of interest, if you like, the way that I live my life now, it's quite obvious, to probably to many that, that would know me that I that I have ADHD. But when I was younger, I was really trying to conform to a neurotypical life, academia and school. For many, the reason it doesn't fit is because you're basically saying all of you need to fit into the structure of academia and learning. Otherwise, you will waste of time basically yeah so i forced myself to conform and that's never going to and you have to kind of shoe fit yourself into something it's never going to come without consequences so i found myself to be a very anxious child as very sensitive and as i went through university i just found like a lot of things really affected me perhaps more than i saw affected others i'd develop a lot of anxiety around time i'd worry about other people a lot um, and I think I got a lot of anxiety from scenarios um, whereby I was kind of stuck in a place for a long time. And it makes sense if, I, if you've got ADHD and you're stuck in a room or in you know, a lecture for several hours, it's not great, is it? And I think since I have learned more about the ADHD, my anxiety has got better, which I think is part of the reason that I came off medications. I mean, I add on top of that, of course, um, you know, I lost my brother a um, couple of years ago, um, three years ago to suicide. And you know, I worked throughout most of the pandemic and you know if you'll allow me to say that then i think you know i was one of a few doctors who really was in the hospital and sharing what was going on from the hospital every day you know i was filming for lorraine show bbc news was live on bbc news in the evening i was working every day and the pressure people going what's going on what's happening we need you to film this we need to hear from the Mm. front line we need you you know can we get a consultant on to talk with you about this and i all of that took its toll it really took its toll on me, um, and yeah, I, I, I'm very fortunate really for that medication. I think.
0: What impact did the medication have?
1: So, at the point where I called my GP, I remember the day actually. Um, I was working an any shift, and I was questioning whether I needed help. I was actually, I got to the point where I was so anxious. And I might actually start from this from this mm. idea. A lot of the time, we separate anxiety and depression. And I'm sure um, your mum, you said as a consultant psychiatrist, would agree with this as well, is that when you've got severe, on the severe end of either scale, the two become so in, in, inter, in, intertwined. So if you're severely anxious, how can your mood not be affected? How many people have severe anxiety and they've not got low mood or, you know, burning out and they're getting complete lethargy and so on and vice versa if you're feeling so low in your mood that you can't lift your mood it can make you pretty anxious isn't it? it's pretty anyone listening knows that when you you wake up and you cannot you feel so low and you can't lift that mood it's a pretty anxiety inducing feeling so the two become really intertwined and I think I got to the point where I'd realized that I was like is this anxiety anymore am I is this just severe depression and anyway I was in a shift in A&E and I was like this is bad and I walked outside and I literally rung the GP practice and I was very fortunate actually that I got an emergency appointment and I told the GP where I was at and they said listen you know you've obviously done so much stuff to try and improve this I'd done all the techniques I talk about and it just wasn't working Mm. at that point I was at a severe end of the scale and I think I was also experiencing a lot of the grief about my brother so I started on and the first eight weeks were really hard. You know, in med school, we learn like warm people the first two weeks. Um, wow. I mean, it, it's literally worse than you'd even explain on that. It's two or three weeks of hell is the only way I can explain it. And you go, oh my God, I feel this bad. Now it's making me even feel worse. And I think the only way and the only reason it was kind of tolerable and the reason I got through that is because I sat down I screenshotted a load of testimonies and and if you go online you'll see people sharing kind of their experiences of going on medications like sertraline and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel I was like oh my god this person's saying it'll get better I remember sitting there literally like sobbing away reading it being like it's going to get better it's going to get better and thank god it did it did get better and after eight to ten weeks it was like a cloud lifted and all this gray my whole life had just become gray there was more color like there's color in the green and All of a sudden I lifted and it was, it was, I honestly, that's one of the scariest times of my life being in a situation where you feel so bad, you can't see a way through. And I'm a very resilient person. I might be very sensitive. I might get anxious, but I'm very resilient. I've been through a lot of crap in my life and I am quite resilient and I really was frightened during that Mm. period of time. And I'm very glad to be out the other side am i you know you you always face challenges my mental health goes up and down at times but i know that even in the bad times i can get through and that perspective in life is very important you know knowing that and this is a challenge for young people my brother was 19 when he passed away he didn't have a perspective perhaps that dark days don't last forever that they do pass you know i think one of the challenges for human beings is whatever they're experiencing this current moment feels eternal you know, anyone will know that. When you've had something go wrong, you failed an exam that was really, really important or you something bad has happened, someone has died in your family that you loved, you think that suffering is eternal. Because mm. it feels that way. We only have the present. The odd, the odd, I guess, dichotomy or the odd thing about life is that we only have the present and yet we spend a lot of time in the future and past. But when we're suffering in the present, we're very bad at remembering that there is a future and that yeah. there might be a future self that doesn't suffer. And I think that... You know, I wish you know for my brother, and I I, I talk about it a lot. You know, for 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 everyone, I hope to to realize that even the worst suffering doesn't last forever. I got a tattoo here that says, "This too shall pass." And in my worst times, I read it. I remind myself, like it will pass.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's like all the spiritual teachings teach us to live in the present moment. But if that present moment is very dark. That's potentially an unhelpful place to be. Well, the
1: odd thing is, is that pain makes us. You know, you, get, you see, get into a cold shower. I have a cold shower every morning. I think I'd really recommend it as one of the <laughs> things that really helps um, center you and uh, to start your day. But just like a cold shower is. You know, it's cold, it shocks you, it brings this present. So does pain in a way. So pain makes us very aware of the moment that mm. we are in. And sometimes when that pain is so bad, especially when it's a it's it's an emotional but almost physical pain a lot of the time when you're when you're struggling that much, you get so bogged into the present moment. You get so and you also feel so isolated. The cruel thing about mental illness is that it is an isolating thing. It makes you feel like you're entirely alone. There's a great word, um, that I learned recently called Sonder to Sonder. And it means to be aware of other struggles, even though you don't know what the struggles are. So it's kind of the idea that you could be sat in the train station. You know, you've got all these people that are walking past you and you just stop for a moment and go, all of these people that are walking past me have challenges in their life. They've had things that have happened, things that might happen, things that might be happening right now. Someone might have the worst call of their life. And it's not at all to think like, oh, I hope other people are suffering too. But it's an awareness that your own suffering isn't the only suffering to happen. And there's a sense of like unloading that comes with that. And it's a similar feeling to when you share a problem. I mean, when I told my mum that I was really, really struggling at med school, which was the first time I struggled with my mental health, um, it was one of the best feelings of my life, which is really odd because you think, well, how could that be a best, fe- like amazing feeling? But all of a sudden I wasn't carrying the secret of suffering. I was sharing it and I was like, oh, oh I've shared this and I feel better and mm. maybe I can get better.
0: Yeah. What what kind of struggle was it at, at med school?
1: Um, at med school, I was just severe. I just I became severely isolated actually, and, I, and and that isolation made me feel so lonely and anxious. So I was I went to Peninsula Medical med, Peninsula Medical School, um, Exeter, Plymouth, and Truro. So I was on placement down in Truro, long way from family and friends. I was away from my girlfriend at the time, and I got into a really lonely place. People go like, "Is loneliness that bad?" Well. If you smoke 15 cigarettes a day it's pretty bad for your health we all know that loneliness actually causes more harm to your health than smoking 15 a day it kills a lot of people it affects mental health physical health cardiovascular health human connection is absolutely vital it's a reason why the whole chapter in my book is focused on connection because without that It can really, really impact us. And I basically lost connection. And because of my lack of connection and therefore almost lack of purpose in my day, I stopped eating well. I slept terribly, didn't exercise, didn't go outside. I actually became more isolated because I felt lonely. I actually became more isolated. And it was like a negative spiral. But it got to the point where I was really in a bad place. And you'd think, well, why didn't you go to, you know, did you go to the med school? Uh, Why didn't you go and speak to someone? Well, as you know, I think in the medical profession, I think it's probably one of the last frontiers of really bad stigma, I think, in terms of mental illness. And I thought, you know, if I go to the university and say, I'm struggling with mental health, what are they going to do? They're going to hold me back a year. They might pause my studies. I thought, no way. They'll say, Alex, you can't be a doctor because you can't look after yourself. Mm. So what did I do? I stayed silent, as a lot of med students do and the suffering got worse until eventually I realized I couldn't carry on in that way and thankfully I told my mum and from that moment of speaking to her a whole chain of things happened all of a sudden I didn't feel as alone she also made a very good point she worked and works well she used to work in in, in in a bank so not medical at all she said Alex why would you feel good when everything you're doing in your day will make you feel bad and I was like that's a really good point i was like maybe i should get up at seven in the morning go to bed at 10 maybe i should probably eat food that's a bit better for me in general probably exercise is a good idea i could call my mates and go and make the trip and see them on a saturday you get my idea all of a sudden i started making changes hmm. and at first and this is why the discipline's important i saw no change i was like oh my god i feel just as bad but after kind of 10 12 16 weeks the clouds started lifting. I suddenly started feeling less anxious. I felt more assured. I felt better. I felt purpose. And all of a sudden, I was I was better. And I think that's the first time, A, I'd realized, oh, my God, mental health can just hit anyone. And that's the first time I'd really kind of understood how I felt. That, and I went to the GP to talk about it you know, and and I think that's also the first time I really understood that it does matter. This kind of wishy-washy stuff, as I thought before, about kind of self-care. I was like, do you know what? Damn, it's really important. (laughs) Because you know what? If you don't, you can end up in the state that I was in.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things about mental health that seems just like it's such an invisible thing that can just strike seemingly at any time. And your life could be going along absolutely swimmingly. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing you know, you're like, you know in this you never know pit of you depression. never know
1: i mean you never know what can happen in life i often say um the things that we worry most about aren't the things that come to pass you know often it's a tuesday afternoon at four o'clock when the sun's shining you get a phone call that changes your life that's what happened to me you know i was sitting down to eat dinner with my friends you know we just come out of the pandemic i was supposed to go back to wales to see my family the week later and my phone rang and i have um uh agreement with my parents that if they are ringing for the ch- for a chat just ring once say my phone started buzzing now they'd ring once because often i'm filming stuff or i'm in meetings or doing something like this and if they film once and if they phone once i would just call them back later but if they ring twice i know it's really important so if they rang twice now i'd answer um and the phone was buzzing and buzzing And i thought oh okay so i answered and i immediately from the tone of voice i just said who's died and like that, you know, your life, my life changed and it has changed forever. So even if you don't believe that mental health can just or mental illness can just happen to you from a state of, you know, this has creeped up on me as it does for a lot of people. Things just can happen that just send you down. And that's why it's so important to learn about yourself, to learn about your coping mechanisms, to learn your emergency toolkit like what you're going to do if something really bad happens in your life someone passes away it's likely that everyone's going to lose loved ones in their life it's life what are you going to do if that happens if a bad day happens or say you lose your job or there's a financial crisis or something changes in your life you have a breakup you need to have something you need to have a plan in action hmm. to look after yourself and luckily by that point i had been working on a lot of the stuff i was in the midst of writing my first book Live Well Every Day and you know I was l- using a lot of the stuff I'd learned from med school um, but also obviously my experiences and I think without some of that stuff and awareness that I you know things can get better, I don't know where I'd be. Um, so I'd say to anyone, look, just work on this stuff, make it part of your day. Because you know, if you're wherever you are, and you know, if you're having your days are 70% and they're quite good, hmm. do you want them to be 80%. You know, build upon it. If you want to be more successful in your career and you want to achieve more or whatever it is, it will help you. It will help you achieve. Hmm.
0: How, how did it feel in that moment when, when you got the phone call?
1: Uh, I mean, you just think this can't be real. You just think this cannot, how, how can this happen to me? Like, how has this happened? You know, I was supposed to go home a week later. My brother, Lir, uh, was 19. He had a place at Stampton Med School. He's going to be a med student. Um and he was gone, and you know we didn't we didn't think that he was in that place. He was nineteen and fed up after the pandemic was kind of locked away quite a lot, but we didn't think he felt anywhere near like that and that's the problem I mean he made a binary decision right there's a, there's very few decisions in life that are irreversible, very very few there's very few decisions that are truly binary that you cannot claw back or you can to some extent mitigate. Deciding to take your own life is one of those examples where there is no going back. So he made a decision to leave us rather than talk to us and say how much he's struggling. And when people go like, ah, oh, stigma, we haven't we fixed it. Well, why would you make that decision to not even try and tell us and let us try to help you? You've decided that you'd you'd rather take this option rather than share. And, you know, in that moment there was just such a realization of like, wow, like. Why did you call me? You know, why didn't you give me a phone call? You know, I was, I was very much talking about mental health well before that. Um, before I even went on Love Island, uh, I, I used to spend a lot of time in Lewisham Hospital teaching med students, and I spent a lot of time talking about mental illness because mm-hmm. I said, look, you guys come here and you think A and E is all about physical, you know, car accidents and heart attacks look at the mental illness that we see. You need to learn about this stuff. You know, I'd take them in to speak to patients who are struggling with mental illness to try and get an understanding. Because I think a lot of the time at med school, we just think, oh, psychiatry is just that bit in the corner. Hmm. You know? Um, and, and I actually made a video about what to do if you're struggling with your mental health. I made it on YouTube, actually, like a couple of weeks before he we died. And, you know, you think, wow, why didn't you call me? You know, why didn't you pick up the phone? And that's something I have to live with for the rest of my life, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm here. is ups and downs in life. You have, everyone has difficult times. I certainly don't sit here and go like, oh, poor me or pity me or anything yeah. like that. Don't pity me. Um, uh, we're all working through stuff. But please, you know, if someone's watching, they struggling, just make that phone call, tell someone and do it early. If you're asking the question, you're watching this and you feel triggered or you think, are you listening to this and you feel triggered, and you just think, oh, gosh, is that me? Or am I struggling enough to get help? Just get help. Just talk to someone. Mm. Share in how you're feeling. You know, I, I, I wish my brother had shared how he's feeling a year before, six months before, whenever it all started. And we could, he'd be here today. I'm I'm, I'm confident that with the right intervention, anyone can get through almost anything.
0: Why do you think he didn't share?
1: I think, I think the stigma of it is just so hard for some people. You know, there's an analogy that, um, you know, as children, um, we all begin with this suitcase, this metaphorical suitcase. And as things happen in our life, knockbacks, things that are said to us, challenges, we add things to the suitcase. And a suitcase, if we don't unpack things and we don't deal with those things, we don't share, or we ask someone to help us with it, then or someone to carry some of the stuff in the suitcase and it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier until eventually you're dragging the suitcase yeah. and eventually you either have to share and you get to the point where either you share and ask someone to help you because it's so heavy or you drop it eventually it's just too much to bear but for someone to help you you often need to ask them you need to open your mouth and ask for help mm. and i guess at that point he he decided he couldn't carry this but he also couldn't He he couldn't carry this any further, but he also couldn't ask for help. That's the reality of it. And it happens, we lose so many people. Every three days in the UK, a student dies by suicide. Every three days. Um, Ben West, who is um, another activist in the space, um, uh, he's, he's, he's amazing. He lost his brother at a very at a close age and close time to when I lost my brother. And he's currently working at the moment to get uh, the government to create legislation of responsibility around mental health for Mm -hmm. universities, which you think was obvious. I mean, there's a physical responsibility, but there's not currently legislation or framework around the mental health of students, which, I mean there should be shouldn't there? So these are the most obvious things that there should be. But every 3 days we lose a, a student in, in this country. And I know we have a lot of students that are listening to 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 this uh, uh, podcast and it doesn't have to be that way. I think that's the point. It doesn't need to be that way. We don't need to rely on people waiting until they're at the very sharp end to get help. Get help early. I mean if I was limping you know, and if I was limping on my ankle, you know, was I was clearly limping on my ankle every day, people be like, what's going on? Are you all right? Let's go and take the doctors. You don't wait 10 years, do you? But I think with mental, with our mental health, yeah. we often wait so long, so, so long, too
0: long. Yeah, yeah one thing I've heard from a lot of people, um, and especially if I look at like, you know, the YouTube comments in our podcast community and things, where, you know, while we would like the stigma to be a lot less, there's still that sense of, well, if I get physically injured, then no one's going to question my self-worth. But mm. if I am mentally injured, or if I'm mm. saying that I can't cope, or whatever the thing might be, oh, I'm just being a softie. Oh, mm. I just can't handle the pressure of, oh, I signed up to medical school knowing it was going to be mm. hard, and now I'm here and I'm buckling under the pressure, and therefore mm. I am deficient, rather than I have I have an illness, I have a, mm. I have a disease.
1: Well, you know, I think if you've been through something you really are something you are somebody because you survived you've endured i've got a tattoo in the back of my wrist that says i endured and i people might think oh that's you know seems silly but i remind myself you know i am here i've been through and survived all of my most challenging days and mm. in many ways you might look at it and go well actually do you know what? i've been through some very difficult things and yet i am here but also i ex- experienced difficult days that nothing really caused them and yet I'm still here so at med school I felt lonely but I nothing overtly had happened to cause how I was feeling at that time although of course as I said loneliness is a very is a huge thing and you know the opposite of, of loneliness is, is connection um, it is very very important that we all work towards meaningful connection but nothing had happened to me but I ended up in a difficult place and I got through that and the things I learned from from that experience, make me stronger and more resilient you know i you know you know if you break a bone then when the bone rebuilds, it builds back stronger and, and 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 there is like an overcompensation of that bone to to make it more resilient and I think if you've been through difficult times you've got support and you've got back got yourself back to a better place, that makes you pretty tough, you know, and the opposite of that is what trying to pretend that you're absolutely fine mm. i'd much rather if I you know my team I'd much rather people tell me early that they're struggling so we can work with them and help them get into a better place than struggle on and get to an even worse place even if you weren't thinking of this from a ethical perspective and a moral perspective which you should we humans should care for about each other if you think about a team you don't want someone to get to the point of breaking point where it's going to take them two years to fix themselves and be back functional mm-hmm. surely admit to it early on and let's get you there uh, everyone goes through stuff i mean i hate the stat of one in four people have mental illness i'm like well okay one in four people get diagnosed at a doctors how many people go through bad stuff in their life everyone goes through bad stuff something will happen to every one of us in a life that is difficult that is challenging you might you might get you might get fail your exams or get into university you might go through a really bad breakup you might lose your job that you loved your dream job you might not even you might get to a point where you've nearly achieved your dream job and then you it all goes wrong and you can't do it maybe you do get a physical injury that makes you incapable of doing your or carrying on doing the passion that you love difficult things happen to everybody so I think the sooner we kind of drop this idea that only you know that you know it's weak to admit that you've had a difficult time just be—it's being honest. Actually, mm-hmm. be honest, and also what it requires is leaders. I think within sports, within politics, leaders within the world to actually be a bit more honest as well. You know, people often talk about their success; they don't often talk about their failures. Mm. You know, to you talk about it um, a lot in, in the work that you do—that to get to any end result, you have to go through multiple processes and learn what processes work, learn what are the weak points of what you're doing, the strengths you have to learn about yourself, you've got to adapt, you've got to discipline, all these different things you have to apply. All of those learnings require failure. All of them require you to mess up I yeah. mean, how many people are so lucky they have a business idea that goes straight to the top and they make a billion dollar company off a business idea and they, they've not failed at all along the way. Absolute rubbish. Look at Elon Musk. He's, he's failed all the time, apparently. He's still doing rather well. Isn't he the richest man on the earth again? Yeah, something like that. 190 billion or whatever he's worth. <laughs> That's
0: the one. That has quite a lot of haters. I don't know how he deals with it.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, he has a lot of haters. And, uh, and I think there's a really good point around that as well. It's like, at what lengths do you want to be successful, whatever that means. I think it's better to take people along with you to care about each other, care about people's mental and physical health, care about the team and build something that's meaningful and an environment where people can genuinely talk and get support and, Mm. you know, share.
0: Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, we've had this issue a bunch of times within within our team as well, where someone's been feeling overwhelmed Mm. and has been trying to plaster over the cracks for like six Mm. months Mm. before things like come to breaking point. And then turns out that, they hadn't taken a day off for the last like eight months, so mm. it's like wait, wait what. Like, yeah, And that comes as a complete shock to me. And then again, again, the of the, the, tri- like, the tri- system would help that. <laughs> yeah, because exactly. you are, It's
1: like going back yeah. to the entire, if you sat down with your team and you go around the room, it takes a few moments. Yeah. They'll say, actually, I'm feeling kind of, um, you'd have learned about the amber six months, eight months ago. Exactly, yeah. And you're like, why you feeling, well, actually, I've worked eight days in a row. Yeah. Why have you worked eight days in a row? Yeah. Right, let's resolve that. Right, <laughs> yeah. right you'll feel green, you feel green, you feel green. Right, yeah. how do you support this person that feels amber or red? Yeah. It's a great, t- if, you, if you've got, if you're listening and you've got a business, use that technique you know on about ways about people pour so much money into hr and think of like all right how do we do this kind of fluffy stuff to support well-being of staff just to have a system where you can actually ask people how they're doing and you know if you listen ask ask good questions and listen to the answers and you'll find that a lot of the time the solution presents itself
0: that's a good um is it so? Just to zoom in on red, amber, green. Is it like uh, red, amber, green with a with a reason, or just purely the word, or like how how does it work? So,
1: in so if you think about emotional literacy, a great way to teach children emotional literacy is just a name. Just say, "How do you feel? I feel." You can use weather. You can use cloudy, rainy, or sunny if you want. But red, amber, green is something that we're, we're all brought up with this idea of traffic lights. Even yeah. if you don't drive, you learn about the green man and the red. And yeah. You learn, yeah, we all learn. It's, it's pretty universal. So. I think the most useful thing is to say two things. One, what color you identified to, I feel, um, red, amber, green. And just a sentence or so of why. And if you feel green, why? Mm. Why do you feel green? Well, I, today I've completed a task. I did my gardening. I got a bit of exercise, slept well last night. And you are cognitively and subconsciously um, Establishing and reaffirming the things that help you feel good. You know, we've got two parts of our brain broadly, haven't we? We've got the conscious mind or two parts of our mind. We've got a conscious mind and our subconscious mind. Hmm. Our conscious mind is only about five, 10% of what's going on, right? Most stuff is just running along all the time subconsciously. Like you're not thinking about how you're sitting the whole time. Yep. When you drive to location, if I asked you about how, what corners you took, you wouldn't even know. You're, you're thinking about the radio and all this kind of stuff. The only time you click out of automatic pilot mode of driving is when you see a horse in the distance with a rider on top. You have to make decisions. <laughs> i have to break or i have to drop back or i need to overtake slowly then the conscious mind clicks in but most of the time it's subconscious but the thing is you have to train your subconscious and if your subconscious has been trained through childhood to think there's one way of being and that's the only way of being or this is the way i'm going to be and we're just going to tick along in the background then unless your conscious mind makes a decision to retrain the subconscious it never changes
0: Another exercise you talk about is um, sort of wheel of life to give yourself a mental health audit. I wonder if you can elaborate on that.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the one of the biggest things that I I believe, is that you have to you have to understand. To fix any problem, you need to understand what the problem is. First of all, you can't find a solution without knowing the problem is. Again, going back to medicine, it's very hard to yeah. treat a, a patient if you don't know what's going on. And the, the, the Wheel of Life is just a useful way to break down the sections of your life broadly. You know, I set about certain examples, but break it down and then be able to give a score to that section about how happy you are that you're in the right place so it could be like i'm just gonna say like you know uh physical fitness is yep. just a random one right and you can give your scoring from you can be zero to ten whatever you'd like to use but give yourself a number or an understanding on this scale about where you are have several factors in your life you could break it down into finances you can put it into fitness yep. you can put it into mental health you can put it into your hobbies you can put in whatever you like are you achieving what you want to achieve in that area or are you where you want to be mm. and it allows you to have a general look back and go well actually do you know what my physical fitness is pretty good but actually i i don't feel that i'm doing the things that i enjoy in my life i'm not achieving or doing my hobbies at all and so it just really helps to zoom out and then zoom back into the areas that you want to want to work on and you know i i would say like with um like with a track traffic light system, it's just knowing what's normal for you and knowing where you want to be and then putting in place yeah. those changes and you know I use the idea of a toolkit all the time at the end of the day, like my toolkit will be different to yours, like I will have a different routine, I probably get up at varying different times. There's certain things I'll do in my day that might be similar to you or different to you, and just understanding how you are what you use to have your maintenance stuff, yeah. what things build your min- mental fitness and what things are in your emergency toolkit. And I know it sounds silly, but have an emergency toolkit. So on a day where everything goes wrong, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to look after yourself? You know, because often, let's be honest, the default is drinking for most people. Let's be frank. I mean, in the hospital, bad day on the ward, what should we do? Let's go to the pub. Mm. We'll end up drinking. The irony, of course, is that we use drinking and it makes most things worse. You know, people say, oh, but alcohol relieves stress. Actually, a recent study showed that uh, even drinking three glasses of wine a week raises your baseline cortisol levels, which is obviously a hormone we associate with stress and inflammation in the body. So alcohol isn't that great for stress. It's not actually that great for anything, really. So learning what your good coping mechanisms are going to be on bad days is as important as your maintenance day to day. Yeah.
0: Yeah, like um, the, the the Wheel of Life is one of my favorite things to to do personally, but also to do as part of a group. Mm. Um, we were in Austin, Texas last mm-hmm. week, and we did a, a meetup for like 100 of our uh, YouTube Academy students. And at the end of my keynote, I was like, all right, guys, we're going to do a little exercise. Mm-hmm. Bear with me on this one. And we just split life up into 10 different things. And I just gave mm-hmm. them the, the 10 categories. And everyone just on their phone wrote just a number on yeah. how, how aligned they're feeling yeah, with yeah, each yeah. one. And people were like, whoa. You know that's that's really helpful. It's like I realized I'm not spending enough time with my friends, and I just hadn't realized that until I literally was forced to give it a, to give it a number. Mm. And so I think exercises like that that you would find in you know life coaching mm. books and things like that that might seem a bit mm. uh, weird, especially for an, uh, a somewhat intelligent audience. Mm. Um, I remember the first time we did we, we we did the wheel of life. It was in our fifth year of medical school, mm. and it was a session called "How to Be a Successful Doctor." Mm. Where the twist of the session was that, you know, our, t- our, our tutor, Dr. Liddicrapp, basically said that for Cambridge medical students, it's almost a given that success is becoming, you know, getting that like mm. oh intense, like ranking in your FPAS or in your CT- SD 3 applications or becoming the Regis professor of physics. But actually, there are loads of different ways to be successful, mm. whatever that means to you. And he handed out this Wheel of Life exercise and like half of the class absolutely loved it, half of the year group. The other half was like, what the hell is this? This is a total waste of time. Mm. I can't believe I came. And follow like, those people. This. If you yeah. follow those
1: two halves and you see who was most successful at the end mm. and what, and actually most ways you develop, that you'd measure success, the group that enjoyed it would have been most likely to be successful, not because the exercise is amazing, but because they were open to new ways of thinking and towards introspection. Yeah. People that are that are stiff, that don't want to think of new ideas, that don't want to think outside the box or understand that there might be merit in things they don't understand are often the ones that perhaps don't end up where they want to be. And I've seen that in my life. I mean, it's only anecdotal. I'm not backing. I'm not saying there's any, I've got evidence for that. But yeah. in my experiences generally, those that are adaptable in life are able to get the most out of it. And it's exactly the reason that I want schools to focus a little bit less on academic results and a bit more on building well-rounded, resilient, um, you know, Children, there are people that are able to work in teams, are able to adapt to adversity, they're able to overcome and able to find... And are able to look for the positive and useful thing. Like even if you're doing something. So if you put me in a, I I decided to go along with friends to a random thing like salsa or whatever. And being able to go along while I'm here for an hour, let's get something out of this. Let's use as a confidence building exercise. Rather than going to something going, this is a waste of time, I don't want to do it. (laughs)
0: You're going
1: to gain, you're not going to gain anything if you go with attitude. If you go to the attitude to try and learn something, you might just. And to use, um, and the reason I think that's, this stuff is also important and the reason that actually understanding where you're at right now is so important is to use a an old arrow very much overused adage you know knowledge is power it's absolutely true like often we feel feelings of discomfort but we don't know what what the reason is like why am i you I mean, if you everyone knows the, the feeling of being hangry i mean you've munched away on a class <laughs> and you're probably a bit hungry after your therapy um, yeah you, you, you know hangriness is something we all understand. But how often do you walk around hangry and you don't know it's because you're hungry and it's actually your girlfriend, your mate goes, have you eaten? You seem hangry You go... Oh my god, I am really angry. You thought you were just annoyed. you thought you were literally annoyed about this random thing that happened, this train that's late. But yeah. actually, you were hungry. So we're not very good. We're good at we're good at feeling discomfort. Yeah. We're not often very good at knowing where discomfort comes from. Yeah. So if you're feeling not at ease in your life, then working out where that comes from is your primary—you yeah. know—that's the most important thing. Where does that come from? Is it because I'm lonely? Do I lack good connection in my day to day? Am I hyperconnected online, the digital space, but not really having a meaningful? connection face to face or am i actually just sleeping like crap hmm. you know a lot of people feel really rubbish a lot of the time and a lot of it is for a lot of people it's because they just don't sleep enough they they don't sleep and um if you sleep badly everything else goes wrong you know so just just having a little think about where where does this feeling come from where's this discomfort from
0: all right we're going to take a very quick break from this episode to introduce our sponsor which is brilliant.org I've been using Brilliant for the last several years, and they're a fantastic online platform for courses in maths and science and computer science. Brilliant is a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to develop new skills, but especially if you work or you want to work in a STEM related field, it's an absolute no brainer for being able to level up your knowledge of these topics. Brilliant has an enormous library of courses that cover all sorts of topics. And the courses are particularly good because they take a very first principles approach to the topic that they're trying to teach. Like it's not just that they spoon feed you information and expect you to memorize it, like often we were taught in school, but it's more like they teach you a principle and then you apply it with some interactive puzzle or game or activity of some sort, and then you teach you a little bit more and then you apply a little bit more. And it turns into this really interesting kind of engaging teaching system, which is actually similar to the way that we were taught at Cambridge when I was in med school there, where you learn a little bit and then you apply it, and then you learn a bit more and you're generally paired with an expert in the field and you kind of learn together and figure it out and build the building blocks of the knowledge in your own mind over time, rather than kind of being spoon fed a fire hose of information and I expected to regurgitate it. One of my favorite courses on Brilliant, other than all the stuff on computer science, which is like my specialist subject outside of medicine, um, but they've got a really cool course on scientific thinking. And this course explores the laws of physics and engineering and just helps you generally get an understanding of how the world works. Brilliant are also constantly updating their lessons and courses. So for example, they released a new course on crypto back when that was blowing up so people could understand that. They have a really interesting course on neural networks and how they work, which feeds into all the artificial intelligence stuff. And it's just a generally great way of keeping up with all these topics in the field of STEM. So if any of that sounds up your street, then do head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive. And if you're one of the first 200 people to hit that link, which is also in the video description and in the show notes, then you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So, thank you so much, Brilliant, for sponsoring this episode, and let's get right back to the podcast. For me, one thing I've really realised in the last in the last few months, which I, you know, it's taken me 28 years to realise this. Uh, that like sometimes I feel like this like low level like level of agitation, mm. and I realize it's just because I need a wee. And I've just been holding it. in. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, oh, that's it. All right, you know what? Let me just take a break.
1: <laughs> wasn't there a study once? You're the you're the you're the expert in productivity. <laughs> was there a wasn't there a study that were, like found that people needed a wee during their exams? They got they got better marks. Yeah, than those. I, didn't. I remember a reading US something thing. like this. I don't just know how, like, like, but I think yeah. it's probably you like so focused. Like, I got to answer this yeah. question, and I used to try and use that in med school exams. When I needed a wee, I thought, right, I need to just like harness this feeling right now because apparently it'll make me better i'll remember the anatomy of whatever if i need a wee
0: (laughs) one of the one of the truths that you speak about um in uh, the book is about boundaries Mm. you're right having boundaries is key to mental fitness and lots of us need to reclaim our lives from the uh, from the expectations of of a society that never says no um yeah what are your what are your thoughts on boundaries i feel like this is something i struggle with i've realized in the last couple of weeks well that's funny you say that because i think um
1: you know, you're you are you're 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 a very articulate expert in productivity. And what I mean by that is that I think you articulate theory fantastically well. And you also I think you also um you're very skilled at making sometimes quite complex ideas, um, I think uh uh achievable and almost like Engageable, I know the word is for 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 most people. And I I know that one of the things that you've talked about in the past is like working like working prioritizing, but also working out where you put your energy right and time. This mm. concept of like you have a resource which is your time. You know, you talk about all this all this stuff, and I and I think that you know we innately all of us feel as human beings that we need to say yes to everything and that we need to share this resource with everyone and i think one of the things that i again is a bit of a bit of a con or i don't know what the word is it's a bit of a misleading thing to say is like we need to be yes people be a yes man you know mm. that felt like when i was growing up that was like the buzzword be a yes person okay and true i did have my friend freya saying you need to try and do things more and i think in a way her advice was great but it also led that me to do and say yes to almost everything and you know when I when I um I campaign basically I I, the reason I became mental health ambassador is because I went around and spoke to all of the experts and leaders in this space as well as young people as well as teachers and everyone and I came up with a quite agreeable list of all the things that we thought needed addressing and this was kind of like you know broadly these are the big areas you need to work on and i basically use social media to bang on number ten's door and they opened the door and said and i said this is the things that we found i wasn't trying to really do anything other than make them realize what what we were what mm. needed to be sorted i didn't have an idea that i was going to be an ambassador in, in this kind of space But they said look you know you, you you're working with a lot of these charities and in, in areas and whatever why don't you represent them and you know work alongside us in the sense that share with us what we're people think you know work needs to be done the problem was that when I took on the role everyone came knocking on my door saying this 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 idea have you seen this research can you fund this can you find out about this can you make this happen can you everyone wanted a piece of me and at Mm. first I said yes to everything but what I quickly learned is that if you say yes to everything you make a tiny bit of almost almost undetectable impact across a load of different things And nothing is even almost measurable in terms of impact. Whereas if you go, do you know what, rather than doing 300 things actually quite badly and and also doing actually a negligible difference, if you take together all that time from all those things and you add them up and stack them up on top of each other in two or three aspects or even ideally one aspect, you make a massively measurable amount of change. And that's why all of a sudden, after about a year, I said... Do you know what? This thing I really care about is early support hubs. I want to have an early support hub under 25 year olds in every community in the country where they don't wait two years you have walk-in support Mm. access to therapy wraparound support so they're looking at your life as a whole you talked about the life wheel but that kind of idea of working out where does this young person need support what can we do is it actually financial struggles is it education is it is it the fact that this person might have adhd and they've not been diagnosed like are they lonely how do we get this person back into sport or whatever it might be all of a sudden, all of my energy challenged into this, and I've made, I think, quite a huge amount of progress in this area. Well, there's two areas. that There's two things I want to achieve this year, and I hope I'll get there. Firstly is early support hub funding. I need £200 million to fund um, 190 hubs. That would cover each health district in England. My plan would then, or our plan as a coalition, would be to then roll that out So you'd have that as a starting point and then use that as a model to roll it out. The other thing that I want to do is to create a legislative framework in the workplace. So at the moment, there is virtually no legislation around mental health in the workplace. You have to have a certain number of physical first aiders um, per workforce number. So for every 50 people, you need one physical first aider. I want there to at least be parity with mental health, which seems pretty obvious given that the main killer of under 35-year-olds is suicide. So those are the two things I want to achieve. And by identifying those two things, it means you can focus all of your energy into achieving that. And we have a saying amongst the team, um, is it essential? And it's a very simple way that I approach most things. And I'm here sat with you because I think this is essential. I think this is a great way for me to speak to a lot of uh, young people as well as Uh, those within businesses and so on i can speak to a lot of people on this podcast a about mental health and why i think it's important to everyone and also i can talk about the things i'm trying to achieve Mm -hmm. i'm trying to you know people are hearing hopefully about this these two targets and they might go away and think oh do you know what if i see a petition around that or if i you know if i've got any way i can support him maybe i'll try and help towards those two goals so it's essential for me But if it's not essential, I now say no. And Mm. that can be really hard at first. And that's where the boundary chapter started. It's like I realized that I say yes to everything and achieve Mm. nothing most of the time. That's how I felt. I was achieving yes to everything, achieving nothing. When I decided to start saying no to almost everything, I started saying yes to the things I thought authentically wanted to say yes to. to, to, And I actually started achieving things. All of a sudden, I had cognitive space, creative space, energy and time to do things you know we do something now um with my diary my diary was crazy it was absolutely it still is i mean it's it's it is packed jam-packed months in advance but what we started doing is clearing weeks in the diary not for annual leave that's different times we clear weeks whole weeks in the diary which are just breathing space for creativity Mm and allowing space for ideas and things to just happen. Yeah. And you know what? Those weeks are when I achieved by far the most. Yeah. We start a week as a team with nothing planned. And it feels a really uncomfortable feeling. I was like, oh my God, you've got to have to the diaries, all this stuff to do. No, have that week free to breathe. And you'll find you do so much more in that week and achieve so much more than the weeks that you've diarized everything. And it's the same concept. Say no to stuff, create space, and you'll find that you'll do so much more. Use that in your own life as well. Boundaries are not just for the workspace. You know, how often do you end up going to a social event or doing something or saying yes to a what party or wedding mm. you didn't want to go to? There's nothing worse than wasting time. The most the most valuable asset you have is time, you know, and, and everything feeds into that and everything feeds off that. If you spend time, you ain't getting any receipt for it. There's no, there's certainly no refund for your time. So there's nothing worse than feeling that you've wasted your time. And there's two things I would say, have boundaries so you don't waste it and make sure that you spend the time with your loved ones and doing the things that either work towards your goals or build up your enjoyment, your hobbies or whatever, work towards one of those um, slices of the pizza on your wheel and, um, and the other point is, if you are going to spend time ex- and you said yes to doing something, really commit to it. You know, if you decided in a moment, do you know what, I do think it's worth, say, let's make a joke of it today. If I decide I was going to come on this podcast, I'm going to come today, I might as well come and get the most out of it and hmm. really make this an enriching time than dragging myself through it. You know, so if you're going to commit to something, what I'm saying is if you're going to say you're going to do something, do it. Yeah. Like if you're going to promise someone that you're going to do something, give them your best. And the only way you can do that, though, is to allow yourself to have enough energy to do that. And if you promise to do everything, yeah. you won't do anything. And a, and a great catchphrase, and I talk about it in the Mind Manual, about having ways to deal with um, situations where you need boundaries. So I've been six months sober or six months alcohol-free as of yesterday, which I'm proud of. Nice. Um important to say i don't have addiction i'm speaking from perspective i made a health choice i don't i don't compare myself to those that suffer from addiction it is very much you know um something that i decided to do because i felt that i'd be happier without it and healthier and so on but it's still a challenge it's still hard not to drink because the Hmm. society is kind of constructed around the consumption of alcohol almost in every different facet and way and ironically if you're trying to be productive probably the biggest thing that will be stopping you achieving your goals would be alcohol you know almost for every single person if you drink alcohol and you want to do one thing to improve your productivity outcomes your health your relationships your fitness anything just stop drinking Mm. it's one of the best things that you can do but people ask you to drink all the time so having an anchor phrase is really useful and sometimes even just an awareness of how you're going to respond to that like people go and say Alex do you want to drink I just say I don't drink, but thank you. Or I go say, What would you like a drink? I would say at the bar, so we are at a restaurant, What would you like to drink? I'd say, I'd like to have um, a whatever name of the drink it might be. It might be sparkling water or I want whatever it is. Don't allow for space of conversation if you don't want to have that mm. around drinking. And if someone questions you and says, Oh, do you not drink? Say, Oh, no, I don't drink. If you don't create space for the conversation, it doesn't happen. Some people will be curious because they're so curious and say, oh, that's really interesting. How come you stop drinking? And then you can have that conversation if you'd like to. But have boundaries over what you share. You don't have to explain away everything. In the same way, if someone says, um, Ali, I'd love you to come to uh, the re- this restaurant next week. We're going to have dinner. Say, so, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate asking, but not this time. We'll do it another time. Or just no thank you. Mm. You don't have to give excuses. Mm. And often when you give excuses, it just feels so... Yeah. Inauthentic. It's not authentic. Just say you don't want to. It's fine. Your time is precious. And it yeah. is the key word, it's your time. So spend it in the way that you want to. But a great anchor phrase I find for work stuff, and, and I don't know what you use, but you know, I get asked to do lots of different things. If I am absolutely certain in my gut that it's the right thing to do, I'll say yes to it. But if there is even a shadow of doubt that I think this might not be the right thing to do, or I need to think on it, I say, ask me in 24 hours. You know, Abby sat in the room here, my my um, EA and I will say to ask me in 24 hours. She puts it 24 hours next to whatever the question is yeah. and she asks me again tomorrow. It allows your brain time to think about am I making a reactionary decision yeah. or am I or am I actually uncomfortable with this? Another piece of advice I'd give is never make, never make an important decision. In fact, if you can avoid it, any decision from a position where you've just Achieve something or succeeded or won something or something you've really lost or something bad that's happened Hmm. if you're on a high of success you'll often take on more things because your endorphins are pumping you're like oh do you know what um i've done this master's let's do a phd (laughs) yeah don't make a decision once you've just achieved something also never make a decision when you're reeling from a loss when things have gone wrong we have a context of like again going back to that point this is forever the suffering this pain this awfulness is forever you're much more likely to make a bad decision allow breathing spaces most things do not have to be decided in the moment you're in other than what kind of coffee do you want to drink when you are stood in the cafe most things can have time you don't have to commit mm. to things too quickly
0: yeah the boundary thing is something i, I struggle with so much um, why do you
1: struggle with that? i thought I th- i'm surprised you say that because given how much you talk about i'm surprised it's very honest of you to share it but i'm surprised that you struggle with i
0: think uh because i have a people-pleasing tendency Mm -hmm. and so whenever someone asks me something if they're asking me in person or even often if they're asking me on message and it's someone that i know in some way personally i will feel this strong compulsion to say yes to the thing
1: can i give you a phrase that'll help please i would love yeah any tips i'm at capacity it's one of the best phrases you can use yeah. that I think is pretty well understood by everyone. Yeah. And it can be taken in any People understand and go, they're either at capacity in terms of they don't feel they have the energy for it. Yep. They are too busy. They're just politely saying, I can't. Yep. And I use that phrase. And I've had DMs from people. And I just say, I'm really sorry. That sounds brilliant. I don't even say, so I shade to lie. I don't say, I'm sorry anymore. I say, you know, thanks so much for asking. I really appreciate it, but I'm at capacity at the moment. Nice. Or I'm at capacity. Oh, I would phrase. use it because it's you can't be offended by that. How can you be offended by someone saying, they're at capacity they, yeah, that capacity phrase. means you can't take more and I think people really understand that I found no one has ever come back and said oh well da, 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 da. no one has ever done that mm. I'm at capacity and do you know what there you go you said about your therapy that's a great thing to why are you a people pleaser
0: yeah all of that stuff I think where probably, are you, yeah. where, where do you,
1: why do you think you're a people pleaser
0: I've been reading a, a good book called No More Mr. Nice Guy uh, okay. which is very good it's written by some therapist who deals with sort of people pleasing tendencies in men And that book just speaks to me so much because he talks about uh, how how a lot of uh, early childhood experiences can contribute to a child feeling as if they're not enough as they are and they have to perform or they do something or get that perfect grade or whatever. Mm. And then that cycle of perfectionism Mm. becomes part of their being. And so when someone asks you for something, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I want to be a good person. A good person says yes to things and is not selfish and any amount of self-care gets read as selfish and selfish is seen as bad yeah. and so all of these different patterns add up to create this feeling of ah mm. oh, yeah i'm gonna say yes even though i don't really mm. want to say yes to the thing
1: it's uh it's something that is shared by a lot of people actually i think and um you know you're right it's so much of it's from childhood i mean i, I had parents um i think it's fair to say my dad was quite strict mm. um i was the first i was the first child i think my parents were kind of from that area and I grew up in I guess 90s early 2000s when I think it was kind of strict parenthood it was that kind of time um success means doing well at school and Yeah, I had the same feeling. I think, you know, our perfectionism, wanting to be the best, anything from the best, but the best is not great. And worst of all, it's actually terrible if you're not the best. And I've very much unlearned those things, but it's taken a lot of work. And I still come, those tendencies often still come back at times. And I have to go, oh, actually, where does that come from? Why Mm. am I feeling that way? And actually, it um, it can make you feel two things. Number one, that if you don't agree to do something because someone's asked you that you're a bad person or yeah. you're a failure but also it can make you really start comparing to others and thinking well if i'm not doing as much as that person or that person that i'm not successful mm. i mean one of the things i think is fascinating is that we slightly not patronizingly but we slightly go oh, social media yeah about um comparison culture and social media just about body images and six pack it isn't is it you speak to a lot of um professionals they'll go oh yeah but you know i feel compared you know i had a psychiatrist tell me a few months ago um i obviously won't say who it was said they find it really hard and find it triggering online because they see other consultant psychiatrists presenting more papers yep. or doing more conferences or writing or you know getting published in this article so you know we are a little bit like oh it's about flash cars and six packs yeah there are it is it, comparison is about every metric of comparison hum- to be human is to compare so we'll compare anything um yeah. But actually, it's a huge thing in, in, in the workspace as well. Yeah. Productivity. I mean, there's a huge balance of productivity. And what's productive? What's toxic? What's, yeah. you know, if you're sharing, doing a run at 5.30 in the morning, yeah. are you sharing that because you're celebrating within yourself or you're just sharing because you're showing other people that you're doing Mm. at 5.30 in the morning and what impact does that have on other people and I'm not saying it's wrong I mean there's so many ways and I share things like okay I shared that my children's book won children's book of the year why am I sharing that you could Mm. dig into all these things you know I'm very proud that I I did that and so on but there is a we have to think a little bit sometimes about why we're posting stuff but also if we're seeing something if we're reacting negatively why are we doing that because sometimes you know someone's posted something with the best intentions but it's had a negative effect on you Mm. that person's not trying to have a negative effect and you've got to work out why where does your reaction come from is it because you're now beating yourself up because you didn't work harder on something when actually you're already doing so much i i think that that's really important part of boundaries in life is around all that stuff but it's also a social media i mean the average person spends between three and four hours a day on social media that's a huge amount of time make sure you are you'll know why you're using it's the first thing like like you know if it's to make yourself laugh that is a valid reason but just know what reason it is it doesn't have to i'm using it to propel my business into stardom it can just be when i giggle looking at cats that are don't mm. know whatever cat videos dog videos whatever it is it doesn't matter just know while you're using it don't get sucked into it and also just be careful if you're having negative reactions to stuff then you know, moderate who you follow, cull your following, you know, if you're following people that trigger you, don't follow them, like follow people that inspire you. Probably one of the biggest things I'll say, you know, how often do you do people open up their phones in the morning and get triggered by something, you know, Mm. create boundaries.
0: One of the truths in the book is uh, you are enough. And in that section, you talk a lot about imposter syndrome, mm. which is something that like whenever I do any kind of poll on the internet, loads of people struggle with imposter syndrome. I wonder, can you riff riff on imposter syndrome?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the human mind is negatively biased. And the reason it's negatively biased is because it's a protective mechanism. You know, when you look at um, human neurodevelopment, in fact, human development at all, we haven't really changed much. In thousands of years, we we really haven't changed. Yeah. Think of the, how different the world was in 300 years ago, let alone thousands of years. Our brain, and the reason it's negatively biased, is because it's a protective mechanism. Like, if... If, for example, um, we walk out into the, we walk into the forest and it's full of wolves and those wolves could kill us, uh, we get away from that situation and survive. The next time we walk into the forest, we're going to be very weary and think negatively. There's probably wolves in there because it protects us. You know, that's. That is an important protective mechanism, as is anxiety, you know, adrenaline and all these things. You know, it's a fight or flight. It's a deal with a problem that's in front of us. And, you know, we retain memories because memories allow us to learn from the past and make decisions in the present that make our future more certain. You know, self-preservation is like the number one goal for humans as individuals and the race. We need to survive. And so we survive by learning, sticking together broadly, acting in the present but worrying about the future. The problem is, is that modern day society, not for everyone I'm talking broadly for a lot of people, we perhaps don't have that kind of fight or survive or life or death in every moment of our lives, most moments like we're sat here now quite safely, you know, we're not under immediate threat sat here. But our minds as we said, have not changed in thousands of years. Mm. And so they will fixate on things. The negatively biased mindset will always fixate on worries. And it will spend time ruminating on the past where people talk about depression is because of a rumination of the past and anxiety being our obsession of the outcomes of the future. But we're living these experiences in the present moment. And the problem is with imposter syndrome and why everyone experiences it, because that negatively biased mind is trying to protect us from outcomes, negative outcomes. The problem is, is that sometimes it is overbearing and to our detriment. So, um... We might think, oh, I, I can't give this uh, talk on um, alcohol's effect on the on the liver in front of all these people. I'm an imposter. Actually, that person, you might be a, a registrar in, in liver studies. You spent the last six months reading the papers. You've just published an article around, you know, you are an expert is what my point is, but mm. yet we feel, still feel the inner child. Often in times of vulnerability, when negativity takes over, we actually go back to our inner child and we forget everything that we've experienced we go back to that vulnerable state of like oh my gosh like what am i doing here i mean i remember my first day in kings on the wards and i went to prescribe paracetamol i had a sudden moment of panic of genuinely like what am i doing here mm. get me out of here i can't remember the yep. dose of paracetamol i literally turned to the nurse i was like oh my god i'm feeling really bad like in like i feel just like and she knew almost she was like it's fine just the first few days you're just feeling you know you feel imposter a little bit like yeah. that's it happens and it's the negative mindset. Now, I, I think people wonder, oh, wow, it'd be great to get rid of imposter syndrome. I don't think it would entirely because you become an egomaniac and mm. think you're amazing at everything. It's great to have a perspective of like, I'm good, but not perfect. Yeah. Or I'm valid or worthy of this, but maybe I'm not perfect. I can still learn. That's really important. But if you let it, imposter syndrome can take over your life. It can prevent you doing anything. Mm. And I always think it's worth remembering. I have a saying, and I always say to myself, what is the worst that can happen? I know that sounds like I'm going to bring, you know, lightning to be struck on me. It's not what I mean. And it's not even a throwaway of like, oh what's the worst that can happen? I don't care. That's not what I mean. I literally mean what is the worst case here? So if I'm getting up to do a talk um, about mental health, you know, you talked about when you, um, you know, you've done many keynotes, but say you're doing keynotes uh, on YouTube or productivity or business in front of a lot of people, you might think, oh gosh, I'm doing this. There might be like quite good entrepreneurs in the room. Yeah. I'm speaking about this. What's the worst that can happen? Genuinely, mm-hmm. you make an absolute fool of yourself. That's the worst that can happen. And like really the worst case is you make an absolute fool of yourself. Partly you probably haven't, but you might feel that you have. You're still alive. Mm. You're still recoverable. You can still be a successful business person. You can still have a valid, enjoyable life. You can still laugh with your friends. You can yeah. eat dinner afterwards. We often think that the outcomes are so much worse than they are. In most scenarios, they're not truly the case. And so I think it's sometimes pers- applying a bit of perspective to impo- imposter syndrome gets you gets out past Mm. that mindset you know i had it i mean i sat down with boris johnson when he was prime minister i was in margaret thatcher's room (laughs) in number 10 downing street right and the picture of margaret thatcher was above his head and he was sat there and i was presenting to him everything that i'd found out from all the experts i'd spoke to from the charities Mm. from the royal college of psychiatry i'd kind of garnered all this kind of stuff that we'd put together and i was taking it to him Imagine how much of an imposter I felt. But I literally said to myself, because I felt, I felt it coming on yeah. before I went in the room and I thought, I was feeling almost panic. And I thought, what's the worst gonna happen? Yeah. I'm in this room for half an hour max. It'll be done. Worst case scenario, I never come anywhere near this place ever again. I just <laughs> run away. It's fine. I'll yeah, survive it.
0: Which is the same as what uh, most people's position yeah. is, is already that. Yeah. <laughs> that they're not going to be able yeah, to Boris Johnson. Yeah. So, so just, worst case scenario is like you go back to, yeah. you know.
1: You just got to, I think sometimes imposter syndrome, it's asking yourself, what's the worst that can happen? It's realizing that everyone feels it. I have never met anyone in my life. I'm sure there are a few people out there, but I'd argue that probably they're not in the spectrum of normal, that, that most people will feel at certain times that they – are an imposter Mm. most people feel that and Mm. therefore feel a degree of comfort and also realize you would you know i remember i remember once i'm doing um as an SHO, doing obs and gyne i was doing a night shift with a consultant new consultant she was like i feel like a complete imposter i was like what you're a consultant (laughs) you've done all this training you're literally i just watched her do a surgery she was literally so skilled i mean she was so slick she was just like she bossed it i was like you feel like an imposter she's like yeah absolutely And I had this real realization. I was like, wow, everyone, I've just seen this person who's probably one of the most skilled people in life and they're smashing this and they feel like an imposter. You realize everyone feels like it. It's not that bad a thing. When those feelings come on board, look for evidence. Look for evidence for the fact that you're an imposter. Mm -hmm. Then write down all the evidence for the fact you're not. And I will, nine times out of 10, you'll find out that you're not an imposter. And do you know what? If perhaps it does highlight somewhere, that is an issue, then deal with it. Say you're doing a new rotation in medicine and a new rotation is in something really, well, say you're doing like um, HIV as a rotation. Okay, first of all, you're not going to be like taking over and having to know everything about HIV. So often remember, imposter syndrome, a lot of the time it's because you think suddenly like everything's on you or like the world will collapse. It's not going to collapse if you don't know anything about HIV, you'll go in there. The consultant will assess your kind of knowledge and capabilities. They'll always be there to guide you and so on. But it might highlight the fact that you haven't looked up hiv for a long time and you need a bit of work and revision so always look at things and think what is this highlighting why do i feel this way what's the evidence for and to the contrary and actually if there is a learning outcome like maybe before i start hiv uh, rotation in a few weeks time i'll spend four or five hours reading up on hiv and learning and all of a sudden you feel bolstered and you feel better
0: i, I suspect if you asked 99.9 percent of doctors would you write a book called The Mind Manual? They would say, hell no. I'm not allowed to write a book like that until I'm at least a psychiatry trainee. If you ask 99% of psychiatry <laughs> trainees, they'd probably be like, no, I've got to wait until I'm a consultant. If you ask the consultant, agree, no, 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 I've, I've I've got to wait until I'm yeah. like the Regis Professor of Psychiatry yeah. in Adolescent Medicine. And even then, I'm not qualified to write a book called The Mind Does Manual. Mean- there are so many doctors of I've course, spoken to of course, and when who do, have, the, have this issue, but when, it seems you've gotten you, over it.
1: <laughs> well, when do you... And, and also, you know, when do you when do you stop? And I guess yeah. the point is, is like, if I didn't write this book and already it's been out a few weeks and I've had the messages from people that it's helped, if I didn't write this book because I was almost restricted, almost by ego, then I'm preventing something that will help other people mm. because of ego, regardless if it's mine or other people. You know, I wrote the book A Better Day and I the number of messages now. You know, I've won children's book of the year for that book. I, I've i've got thousands of messages from parents whose children it's helped What well, if i didn't write that book think how many thousands of kids have been, we've not helped mm. and i think sometimes the greatest shame is that people have so much to give people have so much to share and they don't do it because they're worried about what other people will think mm. so think about how many psychiatrists out there could share knowledge they think to them is like not that but to other people, if you don't know it, you don't know it. You know, it's that old concept. You don't don't know what you don't know. Think how much they could help other people if they didn't feel so restricted by it. You know, Mm. all of a sudden we're seeing doctors like, you know, you, you, myself, Dr. Karen, we've seen Dr. Julie. um, Mm. You know, we've seen so many people starting to go, hang on, why are we not sharing this? No one owns health. There's no Mm. one that's like, I own health. You don't own it. You know, you also don't get to decide whether other people help other people. Do you know what I mean? And don't be afraid of that. Of course, act within uh boundaries. You know, I basically, for this book, it's a sh- it's a split between my own experiences in life. And, mm. and the stuff that I share is all evidence-based stuff. I mean, yeah. as doctors, we learn to... What do we learn? We learn to critically evaluate and analyze information and come up with summaries. It's basically what we do. We see patients, you want, yeah. we basically <laughs> yeah. use uh, evidence to look at a patient, put it all together and come out with an outcome. And, you know, I... I yeah, I, I really think that um the world is changing. I think doctors are realizing that we don't have to be so insular and yeah. it's not like only one way to do something. You know, I, I really encourage doctors if you want to if you want to have a, a long career in medicine, try and have hobbies outside at the minimum, but also have other fields of interest. Mm. I think you know, I went and did um I did level 3 PT personal tr- training mm. because actually in medicine we don't learn a lot about fitness physiology and the effects of exercise on the body and if I'm going to talk a lot about mental and physical health I want to understand those things I learned so much I literally was like oh my god I didn't know this stuff (laughs) and I benefited from going away and like immersing myself I've got a friend that does um who's a GP who does yoga as well and they bring so much of the learnings from yoga into the GP room because what does yoga teach you it teaches about presenteeism it it teaches you about mindfulness it teaches you about you know dealing with anxiety and depression and therefore this person has a fantastic insight to help their patients and what do gps see a lot of mental health issues so look for ways to enrich that you enjoy don't be ashamed about stepping outside of like the ost hierarchy or whatever (laughs) whatever and if you ever get attacked for it i can tell you that most of the time it's from a position of jealousy it's an absolute fact it's from a position of uh, uh, of jealousy if there is Truth in what they say, take it on board and, and learn about it. And, you know, f- With this book, I mean, I, I said to you before I started, I tore this book apart three times. This is the Mind Manual 0.3 or whatever you call it, <laughs> <Yeah>. 3.0. <laughs> because I tore it apart to make sure if I'm going to call it the Mind Manual, it better be a damn good book. Mm. And I'm proud of it. It is a damn good book. And I've had psychiatrists and GPs and doctors tell me that it's a good book. Mm. Um, so don't be afraid. You know, Give things a go. Don't let imposter syndrome prevent you from living your life because one day you'll be dead and it'll be done anyway. You know, we're alive. It's often, is called the Deep Dive podcast, so it's fine. Um, you know, we're alive for a blink of an eye. You know, the the earth has been around, the human race has been around for about like 300,000 years, something like that. Um, the earth has been around for a couple of billion years, right? It's a long time, got a couple of billion years. We measure time in 2023. Mm-hmm. That's how much we me- measure modern time. 2023 the average human lifespan is 70 80 years it's literally blink of an eye and let me tell you if you're worried about things you're suffering problems and you're spending a lot of time thinking about your problems just remember in three generations no one will even know in two generations one generation you probably won't even remember your problems right now in 20 years let Mm. alone you might remember roughly what you're thinking about but i bet you most of the things you worry about you won't remember but in two generations time no one's going to remember so just just free yourself from the constraints of that sometimes. You know, if you want to write a book, write it. Write the book. If you want to try a new hobby, do it. If you want to leave the career in, you know, regardless of medicine, whatever, whatever you're doing, if you want to leave your career and you want to try something new, you want a new challenge, or you feel that you're not in the right place, that you belong somewhere else, or that you want to try something new, then do it because life is short.
0: Nice. That's so amazing. Such inspiring stuff. I love it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, happiness is an inside job. What do you mean by that?
1: So, I talk about happiness in the book slightly begrudgingly because I think we try and convince people that we should try and be happy and happiness is the end goal. But in doing so, we make lots of people very unhappy. And that's because happiness is just a deflection from the baseline. Mm -hmm. Happiness, sadness, grief, anger, jealousy, regret, remorse, all of these deflections play a role. When I failed to get the marks I needed to get into med school first time round, I missed out on my chemistry A grade by two marks. My coursework was moderated down. Oh. Um, and I missed out my place at Liverpool. Uh, the head teacher wrong and said Alex would be a good student, you know, give him a go. Nope. If I was walking around happy that whole day and smiling away, it'd be pretty weird. Everyone would be like, what is wrong with this guy? He's just lost his place in med school. And also, if I was happy all the time, I wouldn't do anything. No one does anything hard or does anything without feeling there is an urgency to do so. There's an intention to do so. If I was just happy all the time, nothing, if the whole human race was happy all the time, nothing would get done. There would be no, there'd be no reason, like imperative initiative for us to do anything.
0: That's happy defined by like uh, hedonistically happy. Rather than eudaimonically happy, or like yeah, I think the word happy is, Bal- is weird it's because, because it's, it's got sold, so many. But different, uh, see, yeah, I see. Yeah. I think
1: the problem is it's tarnished because we use it. as That yeah. I think what people mean is peace. Mm. I think it's balance, equilibrium, right? Like hemodynamics in the body. Yeah. Like being in a state of of peace is, I think the is yeah. the is the goal. This kind of hedonistic, I agree with you, absolutely idea of happiness. I mean, you know, chasing this feeling of like warm, fuzzy feeling all the time. It just leaves you to misery. And also people then go, well, if I'm not happy all the time, there's something wrong with me. And that creates discomfort and discontent and the opposite of peace. When someone dies in your family, you should feel sad and grief. When something bad happens, you should feel frustration. When you want to achieve something and it feels far away, you want to feel determination and all that kind of stuff. And I think the real goal is just finding that equilibrium between everything. I think no one should live in anxiety all the time. No one should feel sad all the time. Mm. No one should feel happy all the time. You know, we, we've got to find that balance between everything. And you'll find actually when you stop chasing happiness as defined by the hedonistic <laughs> view of happiness, you'll actually find that you're much more content in life. You know, it's kind of like a relationship. If you're looking for a relationship that's full of thrills and highs and craziness all the time, this kind of dopamine rush of like love all the time you know the newton's third law tells us every every um uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction of energy so a lot of the kind of love drunk relationships also have huge lows and mm. huge arguments and fallouts and so on really you want a relationship with someone where you're content you're at peace you balance each other out and that generally you move through life in a synergistic way. That's yeah. actually what most people want. Again, in love, oh, you should be looking for someone that you know you can't stop thinking about. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> to me, that doesn't sound like a good relationship, yeah. but it's what we're sold. So I think redefining our view of happiness, looking at it as like, I want to feel that in each day I generally have a state of purpose. There's a reason to be, that I get joy out of my day, that I'm able to deal with life's challenges, that I can create connection with people, that I spend a reasonable amount of time doing things I enjoy. I think that to me sounds like a good life. And just, again, if in doubt, ask yourself, what does a good life look like to me? What does it mean to have a good life? You know, when's the last time you sat down and thought, is this life that I have the life that I want? And if it isn't, what am I doing each day to work towards the life I do want? If you're just moving constantly and doing things because the people expect you to, and it's not essential, and you agree to stuff and don't have boundaries, before you know, before you know it, you'll end up wherever the river's taking you. You know, the river will take you in the way, in the direction that it's flowing. And if you allow yourself to succumb to that, you will just follow the direction of that river. You've got to kind of. I think you've got to sometimes in life just stop. You've got to step out. You've got to paddle towards the shore, get out of the river, take mm. a moment to have a look at the direction it's it's heading in and then decide if that's what, what you want. Discomfort tells you something. If you're feeling discomfort in your life, it's signal. It's like pain. We learn about it, don't we? Pain is telling you something. It's just a message. Mm. It's just telling you that there's something happening. You've mm. got to make a decision if you're going to take your hand out of the fire or not. That's your decision. But if you just don't look at your hand that's burning, you're not going to know what's <laughs> happening, are you? You're just going to kind of carry on. That's why it's like, oh, well, should we, like, get rid of pain? No, we need pain because you need pain to know. Otherwise, you you don't know when you're standing, leaning on, on the yeah. stove, you know?
0: Absolutely. Alex, I think it's a great place to end this. Thank you so much. Thank Those you so wonderful. much. This has been wonderful. Any parting pieces of advice, wisdom for anyone who's listening to this, who's gotten two and a bit hours into this conversation and is resonating with what you say. Well, right, final deep, words of wisdom? This,
1: is a, <laughs> this is, a, is a deep dive. I think for anyone that's struggling, just please know this too shall pass. I think it's one of the most powerful things that I've ever read, you know. And if you're facing a challenge, then, you know, you can overcome anything in life with the right people around you. If you're struggling, ask for help. There is no share in that. See it as a sign of strength. Mm. And just never give up. I mean, chase your dreams, fear less, uh, spend more time caring about what you think rather, rather than the opinions of, of others. And I think you'll probably end up somewhere near happiness, as we call it. Thank you for having me. Beautiful. I really appreciate Thank you so much.
0: it. Bye-bye.